Hey there, everyone. Thanks for listening to Seeker Plus. I am Trace, and this week we are re-airing an episode about immigration. At the time that this first aired in 2016, immigration was a pressing issue, but today, I mean, wow, talk about politically charged. This is a big deal. I'm interested to see what you all think two years later. Today, we're gonna talk about where citizenship came from, what good immigration can do for a country, what bad it can do for a country. We're also gonna talk about how globalization has affected immigration, but first we have to define what immigration is. So over the next hour, we're gonna go super deep into the idea of immigration and how it affects pretty much everything. Economics, history, psychology, we got it all. So let's kick into it. So in the US today, citizens have inalienable rights guaranteed by the Constitution, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression to an extent, you know, right to vote in free and fair elections, the right to privacy, sort of, it's not really explicitly granted in the Constitution, but there are parts of the Bill of Rights that guarantee and explicitly protect aspects of privacy or what one could call privacy. We also have the right to equal treatment under the law and, you know, the right to a fair and speedy trial. But according to the Citizenship and Responsibilities section of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, citizens of the U.S. aren't just given rights based on being citizens. They also have responsibilities. Did you know that? We have things that we also have to do because we agreed to be citizens. You know, we joined the country club that is America, and therefore we have to put our towels in the bin instead of just throwing them around everywhere. And those rules include supporting and defending the Constitution, serving the country when required, and participating in the democratic process, and, you know, a number of other things. The concept of citizenship is not new. This isn't something that the United States invented. This goes back thousands of years to ancient Greece and Rome. One of the first civilizations in Europe began on the island of Crete in the Aegean Sea. It was the Minoan civilization in 2600 BCE. And Greek culture took a lot of its cues from the Minoans. Obviously, during this period, as through all periods of human history, wars were a big part of the Greek culture. Eventually, however, things started to get into a peacetime, and city-states began to develop around 800 BCE. And these city-states were places that people could live and kind of create their own mini-governments, as opposed to today we have these quite large countries. Something like Rome would have been a city-state, something like Athens would have been a city-state, something that self-governed rather than letting the country as a whole govern them. Mountains and seas separate a lot of these city-states, and that gave them these senses of independence, and they included a central city usually surrounded by villages. Each section was called a polis. People in both the city and the countryside were all part of a polis, and people in a polis thought of themselves as part of a political community. All citizens of the polis had legal and political rights in there, which becomes the concept of citizenship. These citizens were part of a political community. Thanks, Greece. Thanks for figuring this out for us. But monarchies, of course, still persisted throughout history, and the debate between citizen versus subject became kind of serious, became kind of a thing. Aristotle said that a central element of citizenship included the participation in the business of ruling. Citizens were involved in helping to run the country in some respect. Subjects, however, under a monarchy don't rule the country. They are subject to the rule of the monarch. Citizens share responsibilities to rule, and that's impossible in a monarchy. You can't be subjugated and also rule. It doesn't work. 
academic philosopher, political scientist, journalist, and historian Thomas Hobbes, he argued whether a commonwealth be monarchical or popular, the freedom is still the same. So what Hobbes is saying is that it doesn't really matter who makes the law. The law of the land is still the law, you know? It is cynical to think that way, like to say, who cares who makes the laws, whether it's a citizen or a monarch, but there's still laws. Setting that aside for a minute, though, we're not talking about the rule of law. We're not talking about kind of who runs the country. We're talking about the citizens themselves and who decides who becomes a citizen. You know, it, it makes sense in a polis because everyone who lives there, you are a citizen of that polis. You're part of the community. You probably have some land or you have some business or you have some purpose of being there and thus you are a citizen. But at what point does someone become what we call in the U.S. a natural-born citizen? Natural-born citizenship has been discussed widely, especially in the United States, and in light of recent political posturing and discussion of immigration on television and in newspapers, both illegal immigration or undocumented immigrants, as well as legal immigration and paths to citizenship, all of these things are being discussed now, and they all kind of come back to what is a citizen and what is a natural-born citizen. Article 2 of the United States Constitution states, No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. It's a pretty big deal. That's basically saying there are two classes of people inside of the United States, people who are citizens and can run for president because they are natural-born citizens, and people who become citizens later, which means not all citizens are equal. Let me go on, though. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall have not attained the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. That kind of changes things a little bit. You could be a natural-born citizen and not have lived in the United States and can't run for president. So we're really looking for people who live here and were also a natural-born citizen of the U.S. The controversy begins because this prevents 12.8 million Americans from being eligible for presidency. Other significant Americans who are not eligible for presidency currently are former secretaries of state like Madeleine Albright or Henry Kissinger. There were also former Labor Secretary Elaine Chao and over 700 different Congressional Medal of Honor winners. These are people who we've elected and appointed to our highest offices, people who we've given the highest awards that the United States of America can give, and they cannot be president. The governor of my home state was Canadian when I was living there, Jennifer Granholm. And she attained the office of governor, but that was pretty much the highest she could get, except for maybe a political appointment in the White House. Is that fair? Who knows, you know? Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California. Should he be able to run for president? He was governor of, of tens of millions of people. It's a lot of power. This is a debate that people are having. The Supreme Court has never ruled on why and how the natural-born citizen stuff works. And it wasn't obviously strictly defined. But according to the Congressional Research Service, a person who is born outside of the United States can qualify as a natural-born citizen as long as one of their parents is a U.S. citizen or if you're born in a U.S. territory. These are called two things. I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's jus sanguinis or the law of descent. And there's also jus soli. That's the being born in a U.S. territory law. 
And it's not really a law, it's, it's British common law. We still use it today because that was the common law during the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. When the U.S. Constitution was being created, these were the things that we were using in political spheres. Now, today, they just kind of get carried forward. So if you're automatically granted U.S. citizenship at birth, then no worries. You are a U.S. citizen. But there are also all these other people that kind of float around in the immigration debate when it comes to whether you can become a citizen, what is your current political status. So whether or not someone is a natural-born citizen, there are a lot of other terms that are thrown around in this debate. You know, we've got migrants, we've got refugees, on top of immigrants and a variety of different types of immigrants. Before we get to that, I want to tell a quick story. When I was living back in Michigan, this was probably in the mid to late 2000s, I was working in northern Michigan, and I was moving from one place to another. And I thought I would visit my friend who lived in Canada, because it's actually kind of on the way. And in some ways, you can drive through Michigan, go to Canada, come back into Michigan again, and you saved time. That's how Michigan and Canada are so close to each other. So what I did is I drove to the border of Canada, and I had my car full of stuff, and I got to the border, and the border guards were very confused as to why I had so many things in my car. So they made me take everything out, and they searched it all because they thought that I was going to try and illegally enter Canada and stay there and maybe work or something like that. Long story short, I passed the border. It was no big deal. But the woman took me to the office, and she sat me down, and she looked at my passport, and she said, okay, here's the deal. You are now a Canadian immigrant. You have 10 days in our country, at which point you have to leave Canada in order to get any kind of work visa. And I'm just thinking, I'm just visiting my friend for like the weekend. I don't really need all this stuff. And she continued to tell me about how it is to immigrate to Canada. And I was so confused, but essentially I accidentally immigrated for 10 days to Canada. It was very strange. But they're very concerned for the same reason the United States is concerned, because Immigration is a hot-button topic, and different people go to countries other than their own for different reasons. So, for example, a migrant is a person who makes a conscious choice to leave their country. Maybe they're seeking a better life elsewhere, but before they decide to leave their country, sometimes they'll study the language that they're going to have to learn or know when they get there, explore employment opportunities. Maybe they planned some kind of travel. They bought plane tickets of some kind or take their belongings with them. Maybe they shipped them in advance. They could also say goodbye to important people in their lives. They're saying, I am leaving our country. I'm going to go seek a better life in Canada for 10 days <laughs> or whatever. Basically, the distinction here is that migrants can return to their homes at any time. They're voluntarily leaving to go somewhere else to try their hand at living in the United States, living somewhere in Europe, living somewhere in Asia. It can be anywhere. It's not any one country that someone migrates to or from. It just means they're moving from one place to another. Now, on the other hand, refugees, they're forced to leave their country. Refugees is something you're seeing a lot in the news right now because there are a lot of people being forced out of nations like Syria. And they have risks of prosecution, perhaps. Refugees have concerns over human rights and safety. They're not usually moving for economic advantage. They're being forced out. 
Usually refugees leave most of their belongings behind. They leave family members and their friends, or they are with their family members and friends because they were all forced to leave together. Some are forced to flee with no warning whatsoever, so all they have is what they were carrying. Many have experienced significant trauma. Some have been tortured. Some have been ill-treated. The path of travel is usually dangerous for refugees. They usually didn't choose their method of travel, unlike migrants who can buy plane tickets or a boat ticket to go there. People who are refugees are forced into some other path that they may not have picked for themselves. And this might involve risking their life because the whole point of being a refugee is it was dangerous there, so I'm either leaving because I want to be more safe or I'm leaving because... The environment has forced me to do so. The distinction between a migrant and a refugee is that refugees can't return to where they came from unless that situation has changed and probably improved. So just to be clear, a migrant left voluntarily, probably for a better situation. Refugees are leaving for a better situation, maybe, but the idea is they're trying to protect themselves and their friends and family. Now, on top of that, we have... Asylum seekers. This is something you see a lot in old movies, but it's a real political distinction. An asylum seeker is someone who has sought protection as a refugee, but whose claim for refugee status has not yet been assessed. Essentially, every refugee was an asylum seeker at some point, but not all asylum seekers are refugees because they haven't been granted that status. Because... Again, these are political things. These are things that we've defined later. Every refugee has been an asylum seeker. Failure to become refugees can also mean fines. It could mean imprisonment. Depending on what country you live in, people who are asylum seekers who aren't granted refugee status aren't always treated that well. Asylum seekers who are found to be refugees, though, they're entitled to international protection and assistance. So let's use the United States, for example. Not to toot our own horn, but the United States is pretty good at handling these situations. We go above and beyond. It all started when we took in 250,000 displaced Europeans after World War II. The U.S. Congress passed the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, which helped an additional 400,000 displaced Europeans during its time. Our policies and laws have evolved since then, of course, but we're still a pretty major player in the refugee status situation worldwide. In the first 30 to 90 days after a refugee's arrival in the United States, they're given food, housing, clothing, employment services, and medical care. All refugees under the age of 18 who arrive in the United States may attend public, primary, or secondary schools free of charge, the same as a regular citizen or resident of the U.S. Refugees have the same access to university education as United States citizens and permanent residents. And all refugees are entitled to receive authorization for employment. But they can't work for the federal government except in the U.S. Armed Forces, perhaps, until they become U.S. citizens. So, in the end, refugees versus asylum seekers versus migrants all has to do with, one, where they came from, why they came there, and then how the country that they've come to recognizes them. It's about international law, international politics, and policy. It sounds pretty boring and complicated, but if you look at the stories of these people— you're talking about some pretty serious stuff. This can make or break someone's whole life, and it can take years to move from being a asylum seeker to a refugee in some cases. And that just seems awful. 
Because people are sitting there, often in some place that's like been designated for people that are refugees or asylum seekers in a lot of countries, and they're not in the best conditions. They don't have all of their belongings or maybe even any of them. And they're just making do with what they have, maybe with no jobs, maybe with a job if they're lucky in the country that they're in. This is serious stuff, and it affects people every single day all around the world. When countries are hostile to immigration, you hear those stories. It happens all the time, and you see them on the news. In Russia, illegal border crossings, is that's considered a crime there. In 2008, in October, a North Korean was caught and detained as an economic migrant, and he was forced to serve six months in a Russian prison before he was deported. In Italy, a law passed in 2009 that penalized illegal immigrants with a fine of about $12,000. In China, whistleblowers who report illegals to the government receive a cash reward when their information leads to the expulsion of an immigrant. In Mexico, they tightened their immigration laws in 2008 and have been deporting mass numbers of Central Americans and Cubans. Saudi Arabia has problems with women who want to visit a country. You have to have a male relative in order to just visit. There are all of these different countries hostile to immigrants coming into their borders. And with many, many people trying to cross borders all over the world every single day, you'd think that there must be some harm that these people are causing. But despite what some cable news outlets might say, there aren't actually any studies that show long-term negative effects of immigration. And I'm not singling out cable news. When you do search for, you know, super negative things on immigration, you can find them. They exist. But a lot of the stuff that you hear, a lot of the stuff that people, you know, write signs and protest about come from places like, I don't know, just to make some up, things that would remind you of freedombell.guns or, you know, like lizardpeople.org or, you know, borderfreedomlibertyamerica.net or whatever. It's not exactly academic is what we're saying. It's more kind of fear-mongering. If we did want to make an actual case against immigration, some negatives that you could point out, things like undocumented immigrants can be exploited for cheap labor. That is true. And it's probably bad, but it's more of an injustice toward the people being exploited than the country doing the exploiting, right? The common refrain you hear from people is, undocumented immigrants are taking our jobs. You know, they're taking our jobs, everyone. Let's stop that. Sounds great on paper. But the vast majority of those jobs are low-skill, low-wage jobs that they're taking. Jobs that, you know, you'd be competing with people who don't have high school diplomas necessarily. Not that that's bad in itself or good in itself. That workforce is fairly small. We all benefit from more people in that workforce because we end up paying lower prices for restaurant service, for agricultural produce, and for construction because they don't have to pay higher wages for people to work in those jobs. Again, more negative toward the people working in them than the people who live in the country that might be complaining about it. Think about it this way. Some immigrants actually expand the pool of labor. They make some services affordable to more people, say the middle class, by expanding the sectors that might have been out of reach otherwise. For example, kitchen workers or gardeners or housekeepers. Some people might not have been able to afford to have help around the home. Now they can. Day laborers, babysitters, nannies, and even au pairs are all filled with people who have come to this country looking for work, looking to better themselves. These jobs existed, 
but they had fewer people working in them. The more people that maybe could come into the country and work in those jobs, the more affordable they can be. Could be good for everybody. Another complaint about immigration would be they're using up government funding, you know, welfare, food stamps, social security, but undocumented immigrants aren't eligible for a lot of government programs. They don't have a social security number. And even if they did get a fraudulent number, they'd end up paying into the system for which they're never going to withdraw. Undocumented immigrants paid approximately 10.6 billion in state and local taxes in 2010, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. It's a lot of money for things that most undocumented immigrants are not gonna see benefits from. They're essentially paying for their local services. And some of them they'll get to use, but most they won't. Undocumented immigrants, some would say, are damaging the economy. Actually, that's not true at all. Harvard's George Borgia says that the average American's wealth is increased by less than 1% because of illegal immigration. One could say it's pretty much a wash. It doesn't really affect our incomes, our economies at all. We mostly absorb people who come here looking for work, either by creating whole new sectors of jobs that maybe didn't exist before, or by filling in areas where we see that there are gaps. Things that weren't affordable become affordable. Places where you would have had to hire somebody for a lot of pay, maybe you don't have to hire for as much pay. It's a good thing, maybe, even though there are people who would say otherwise. Some countries are so fearful of damage from immigrants that they will block out immigrants completely. Places, you know, obviously places like North Korea or Syria, because there's a civil war there, Nigeria. But what about tourist-friendly industrial powerhouses that block immigrants like Japan? Japan has long, long held these immigration fears. Generally speaking, there's a fear of higher crime and fewer jobs, which sounds familiar. But it could just be hegemonic issues. You know, hegemony, the idea that things are all equal in Japan at the moment, or at least all something we're all used to, right? Immigrants made up less than 2% of the Japanese population in recent years, which means when you see an immigrant, it's more of a shock because you're not used to seeing one there. The prime example might be when half Japanese and half African-American Ariana Miyamoto won the title of Miss Japan, there was an outcry as to whether she was Japanese enough to represent the country. She'd grown up in Japan, she identified as Japanese, but since people were so used to Japan's hegemony, it wasn't something they were comfortable with. Because sometimes different makes people uncomfortable. Japan doesn't actually allow any real, permanent, legal immigration outside of marriage. It's just not part of their culture. However, a Japan-linked government study showed that their total population is going to decrease by 19 million people by 2050. That's 107 million down from 126 million in 2015. The ratio of the working to the non-working in Japan by 2055, just a few years later, would be one to one. Anybody who knows anything about economics and government services knows that that's not the best way to go. Not enough people working to support those who are not working. 
A shrinking population translates to fewer workers, fewer consumers, and less overall demand in the economy. Larger elderly populations means increased government programs, higher budgets for those programs, and nobody supporting those. Again, one-to-one ratio at working of non-working. Looser immigration laws could be Japan's saving grace in this area. The Tokyo Immigration Bureau Chief Haidenori Sakanaka says, we need an immigration revolution to bring in 10 million people in the next 50 years. Otherwise, the Japanese economy will collapse. Collapse without immigrants. That's pretty huge. Because immigrants can make or break a whole country. So let's start by looking at countries with open-door policies or lean immigration laws. Ireland has immigrants coming from Africa, from South Asia, from Southeast Europe, from Eastern Europe. And Ireland grants political rights to non-citizens, like voting, joining the police force, running for local office. Case in point, in a Dublin suburb, they elected a Nigerian-born mayor. It's Ireland's first black mayor, and his name I'm probably going to mispronounce, but I'll try it, is Ratimi Adabari. I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce the name of the neighborhood, but you can search for him on the internet. Either way, That happened because Ireland had this friendly open-door policy, and the result might be that Ireland does have currently the number one fastest-growing European Union economy as of 2015. Spain, immigrants come there from North Africa, from Latin America. They also have a booming economy. They have a huge construction industry, large amounts of minimum wage agriculture and service jobs, and thus have one of the leading EU economies in 2015. In New Zealand, by way of East Asia and the Pacific Islands, they want the best. This is what they've said. They're in a talent search. It's like star search for immigration. David Cunliffe, the former immigration minister, said that New Zealand was in a global race for talent and we must win our share. They recognize that not all immigrants are created equal. Highly skilled applicants exist across all sorts of different fields and they want to accept people that they think can help New Zealand. It will boost their economy and their population. With high standards of living and low rates of poverty, New Zealand seems to be doing A-OK. Israel, which also has a pretty open-door immigration policy to a slightly lesser extent. Israel does want to remain a Jewish state, so 40% of Israel's population are immigrants, and they give grants to people as an incentive for Jewish immigrants specifically. Grants range from $3,000 to $10,000, and under Israeli law, Jews are automatically granted citizenship in the state of Israel. They do have, however, in Israel, low unemployment, healthy economies, and a growing GDP. So it seems to be working for them as well. That illustrates that, yes, you can have an open-door policy for a variety of different types of people in a variety of different ways, and many of those ways seem to be beneficial. And that's just the health of a whole country. What's the value of, say, an immigrant nation? Perhaps you've heard of one. Hello, United States of America. Our country hosts roughly 20% of the world's migrants, even though we only have 5% of the world's total population. More than 45 million immigrants live in the United States, according to United Nations figures. That's 14.3% of the whole population of our country. They are all immigrants. More than four times as many people living in any other nation in the world, and we're a pretty good case study for that, I think. Immigrants create jobs for Americans. They own businesses here in the United States. Some of the most famous people in the history of our country were immigrants. Einstein, Tesla, Musk, John Oliver. 
<laughs> he's an immigrant. He's actually a citizen now. Sergey Brin, one of the founders of Google, if you haven't heard of that guy or that company. Seriously, immigrants. And even just generally, immigrants benefit Americans. The Social Security Administration estimates that 75% of illegal immigrants pay into Social Security and they can never claim it. In 2005, they estimated that they paid about $7 billion a year in Social Security. It seems great if you're an American. I would like it, I would hope, personally, that those people get to become citizens and cash in on that, on all their hard work. Immigrants are engineers, they're scientists, they're innovators, they're job creators, and according to the Census Bureau, despite making up only 16% of the resident population holding a college degree, immigrants represent 33% of engineers, 27% of mathematicians, statisticians, and computer scientists, and 24% of physical scientists. That's a lot. The Immigration Policy Center estimates that the purchasing power of Latinos and Asians, many of whom are immigrants, that will reach $1.5 trillion for Latinos and $775 billion for Asians by this year, 2015. That's a huge amount of money. Immigrants make up this country, and they aren't in the passenger seat. They are one of the drivers. It's a big deal. On top of all that, guys, the thing we haven't even addressed, aside from the economic concerns, is cultural richness. Countries are made better by being diverse. People are better. Bilingual people's brains work better. So having to speak more than one language, understand more than one culture, that helps us in the end. Have you ever eaten a burrito in Southern California or in Northern California? Have you ever had Italian food in New York? Have you ever had Asian food pretty much anywhere? Chinese food, Thai, any of those things. Music and fashion and technology, all of these things are affected by immigrants to the United States who came here to build a better life for themselves and in the end may have also built a better life for the rest of us. Google, eBay, AT&T, Yahoo, Nordstrom's, Kraft, Sara Lee, I think I might be hungry. The list just goes on. There's a lot of different places that immigrants have affected our history. And many of these companies and many of these people have made their way around the globe. They are famous now. And they started here in the U.S. because we had an open-door policy, or more or less, to immigrants. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Immigrants are great. But when I mentioned that they've now become famous across the globe, the whole globe doesn't treat immigrants the same. And sometimes, if we were to just open all the doors, you know, open all the doors everywhere, what would that look like for immigration? Well, in 2013, the United Nations ranked the top 10 most popular countries to immigrate to. That's the U.S., Russia, and Germany. Those are the top three of the top 10. People want industry. They want to work. They want to prove themselves. They want to build something. And the U.S., Russia, and Germany all have sectors in their economy where that's possible. But that's in 2013. As we move forward, is it still going to be the United States, Russia, and Germany? Are, are we going to have other countries? Is Japan going to open their doors in the future? They have a very robust industrial sector. Immigrants would love to get their hands on that. I know I would. There's a lot of economic benefit to doing that. Talked about it already. But when it comes to globalization, you can't just open all the doors everywhere and say people move as you will because not all parts of the world, not all groups of people, not all industries are equal because they're all under different administrations. 
There are hundreds of countries with their own laws and their own rules and their own cultures. So globalization can get messy when it comes to immigration. There are pros. For example, there's a potential to make the world a better place by letting people move all over the world, letting them go where they will. You could fix unemployment. You can fix poverty just by opening things up. You can also have free trade, which promotes global economic growth. It creates jobs. It makes companies more competitive. And it lowers prices for consumers, potentially globally in this case. It also provides poor countries the chance to develop economically because they can host workers. Those workers can then build things and export them and help the country grow. And that happens through infusions of foreign capital and technology, by spreading prosperity, and by improving the living conditions for those in those countries. On top of all that, cultural intermingling always happens when immigrants are allowed into a new place. You have shared financial interests, which force corporations and governments to solve problems in economics, in sociology, in ecology. You have technology that gets shared across developing nations, from rich nations to poor nations, from industrialized nations to pre-industrialized nations. And those things help people progress, and it helps all of us better ourselves. But there's also cons. There's a dark side. There's a, you know, yang to this yin, or is it yin to this yang? Globalization makes the rich richer while making the non-rich poorer. You know, the, the wealth gap will grow because there will be some people that can invest and some people that cannot. Globalization is supposed to be about free trade where barriers are eliminated. But there's still VAT or value-added taxes in a lot of different countries. Like, for example, in Europe, VAT taxes, I guess that's like ATM machine, just VAT, is as high as 21.6%. That's in Europe. The United States doesn't have that. Developed countries can lose jobs to lower-cost countries. So, for example, if a neighboring country who might have been much poorer before the borders were thrown open has no incentive to not allow their workers to come in and build their own industry, that can take jobs away from a more developed country where it's a little higher cost of living. Things would eventually even out, but it can be pretty volatile at first and over a lot of years. Workers in developed countries like the United States could face pay cut demands from employers who threaten to export jobs to those places where it is cheaper to work. We've seen that happen in the United States. On top of that, without proper regulations, without proper controls, there will be unfair working conditions. There will be a lack of concern for the environment and a lack of concern for the workers themselves. We can end up really doing damage to the people who are just trying to better themselves. We've seen that throughout history too. Those examples exist. That's why we have some of the controls we do here in the United States. Read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. It's shocking. The evidence seems to point to the fact that immigration benefits everyone. There does seem to be a net positive. Not just the economic benefits and the cultural benefits, but it benefits those people who are immigrating often when it's done right. But we can't just throw the gates open and let people go willy-nilly because, you know, that's like pure capitalism. And pure capitalism doesn't work without safeguards to make sure things can work comfortably for everyone. Otherwise, it can be a little too volatile. But, you know, how can you just say, oh, it's too volatile, you can't come in? What right do we have to deny access to wanting to better our lives? Don't we owe it to humanity, to our fellow man, to take care of the sick, the poor, the impoverished? I said this already, 
but give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. That isn't just, you know, something we say. It's emblazoned on a symbol of our country here in the United States, especially. But other countries feel this way too. You know, we want immigrants in a lot of places. We build our countries based on it. And this is the debate. This is the root of the immigration problem. It's not about, you know, cultural aversion, and it's not even really about stereotypes or even economics or prejudice. It's the, the debate at its root is, do we owe it to each other to let people try and make it however they will, or do we not? That's the debate. The debate is important. As global needs change, we're going to keep shifting. As cultures and technologies grow, the needs of immigrants and countries are going to shift to support or disenfranchise immigrants to those places. Whether or not to throw open the doors and let everybody in or lock them down a little bit and only let some people in, that's going to be decided on a country-to-country basis, and each country is going to have their own debate, but we owe it to the people who want to better themselves to have that debate. It's not like people are going to stop moving. People have moved all over the planet for all of human history. It's not going to stop because we decide to debate it on cable news or because of the internet or because of a podcast. People are going to move around. It's what we do. We get better opportunities. We get new technology. We get a new needs for skills. And the world might be a better place, especially if we just talk about it. I sincerely hope you learned a lot on this podcast this week. I mean, we sure did. We got a lot of response to this podcast, and that was back in 2016. If you've got something you want to say now, tweet at us, at Seeker, or me, at Trace Dominguez. We would love to hear your opinions and thoughts. If you want to have a wider debate with everyone in the country, go ahead and hashtag immigration, and let's see what happens. But you can also just talk to us. That's okay, too. Immigration is a huge topic, and we obviously only covered just a small, tiny corner of it, which I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, you can find video topics all about the science of our world on youtube.com slash seeker. That's our YouTube channel. And please throw us a rating on whatever podcast app you're using. We got a great rating so far. Thank you for those who stepped up. It really helps us spread the show around. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode all about matter. I'm super excited about it. So we'll see you then. I'm Trace. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. Seeker Plus.